Welcome to Building Forever, a DBS Group podcast where we explore how we're creating a positive, lasting impact on the world around us, an impact that will endure well beyond the discovery of our last diamond. Hi there, my name is Jackie Mapilogo and I'm your host. On this, the third episode of our Building Forever podcast, we'll be focusing on the topic of leading ethical practices across industry, one of De Beers' four Building Forever pillars. Our long-term success and that of the entire diamond industry depends on strong ethical foundations. Our vision is to use our leadership position to drive positive change across the diamond value chain and beyond to advance industry standards. In a moment, we'll hear from Ferial Zarauki, our Senior Vice President of Corporate Affairs, Iris van der Wierken, Executive Director of the Responsible Jewelry Council, and Elodie Daguzan, Executive Director of the World Diamond Council. They discuss with my colleague Elle how together we're passionate about making sure that every diamond that's recovered is done so responsibly. And stay tuned later to hear from Rebecca Kumba and Raymond Alpha, who are making change happen at the grassroots in Sierra Leone. For now, over to you, Al. Fariel, Elodie, Iris, welcome to the Building Forever podcast. Could you introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about why you're here today? Hi, Al. Thank you so much for having us here. My name is Fariel Zaruki, and I'm the Senior Vice President of Corporate Affairs at the DeBeers Group. And I'm really here today to talk with two experts in our industry about the journey that the diamond industry has been through since the issue of conflict diamonds. Lovely to have you here. Thank you. Elodie, let's go over to you. Good afternoon, Elle. My name is Elodie. I'm the executive director of the World Diamond Council, the international organization that represents the entire diamond supply chain from mine to retail within the Kimberley process. I would like to thank you for this opportunity. You have to know that it is my very first podcast and I am delighted to do it with two friends, two very close friends, Feriel and Iris. And it means so much to me, you know, having a chance to chat, you know, the four of us um, about the industry, about uh, diamonds doing good and also about how we can work together to make it a better industry. Thank you very much, Elle. Wonderful. Thank you. And Iris, welcome. Thank you, Elle. And I must say, I think this is a historical moment because uh, I think the past uh, 20 years, I've never had the opportunity to be in a podcast together with two uh, world experts, uh, Elodie and Ferial. So very excited to join these conversations that matter. I'm the executive director of the Responsible Jewelry Council. We are the leading standard setting organization for the global jewelry and watch industry. Uh, we were founded in 2005 by 14 founding members, including the Beers Group. So it's quite an honor to be here and to talk really about, you know, the importance of the journey, like Fariel was talking about, because it is a process of continuous improvement. Beautiful. Thank you so much for joining me. I really think we need to give our listeners some context on this subject. So Elodie, would you help us unpack the definition of what a conflict diamond is? Of course. And thank you very much, El, for this opportunity. I really appreciate you um, address such an important, important topic right away. So conflict diamonds, you know, are rough diamonds used by rubble movements to finance wars um, against legitimate governments. And this is how the Kimberley Process core document defines it. So to give you a simple analogy, the core document of the Kimberley Process is, would be the equivalent of the constitution of a country. So now let me explain you why and under which circumstances this definition was born. I would say more than 20 years ago, even 30 years ago, you know, conflicts were raging in Angola. And at that time, you know, the government was fighting rebel groups. These rebel groups were using all minerals from the ground to fund conflicts against the legitimate government. And, you know, the effective PR campaign that came out from the NGOs and the media brought to light this issue to the consumers for the first time. And obviously, uh, with a focus on diamonds. So, you know, this burning platform created this never seen before since then sort of camaraderie where governments, competitors in the industry and the civil society got together in a small church hall in Kimberley, South Africa, to develop 
what is known now as the Kimberley process. We are in 2000. And around 31 governments at that time came to an agreement within three years of the first meeting and essentially developed an entire set of rules, policies, procedures, but also customs office for one product with one goal, to protect the integrity of that product. So in 2003, the Kimberley Process Certification Scheme came into effect. The World Diamond Council, you know, which is also known as the WDC, as we call it, was born around the same time, thanks to the commitment of actors of all parts of the diamond pipeline, who understood the urgency to take actions. And by the way, Elle, do you know that the Beers is one of the founding members of the WDC? So Elle, just to give you a bit more of background on the WDC, you know, its mandate is quite simple, yet of paramount importance. We are here to represent the interest of the entire diamond industry, from mine to retail, within the tripartite structure of the Kimberley process and protect the integrity of the supply chain. So I hope this gives you a bit more clarity around the definition of conflict diamonds and its origin. It really does. And it sounds like it has been quite the journey. Um, I'd really like to understand a little bit more about the Kimberley process. I mean, do you think it's it's well understood and celebrated in the years that it's been established? Or do you feel like there's still some work to do there? So that's a very good question. Um, so today we have about 82 governments having to come to agreement with consensus as a decision-making process. And consensus is slow, very slow, L. <laughs> but, that, but as I have said, you know, we have 82 governments and any decision taken would mean a change in policy. And that's why people might perceive the KP as slow. But the fact of the matter is, L, today, 99.8% of the world's diamonds are conflict-free. And if, the, if this is not a success, you know, I don't know what is. And actually, you know, the, the KP focuses on actual issues on the ground, like the one we are hearing a lot these days, the Central African Republic. What you need to understand is that the KP is the backbone of the diamond industry, and I'm pretty sure Feria will come back to this point. And without the, the Kimberley process, you know, there is no trade in diamonds, either rough or polished, as a matter of fact. You know, the KP, through its certification scheme, is an enabler of trade. And that is something that we should never uh, forget. Uh, obviously, the KP is not perfect. It is not a silver bullet. Um, but its uniqueness makes it uh, worth fighting for. And no other industry in the world has a system like this. So do I feel it is well understood or celebrated? Unfortunately, no. Um, I believe, you know, we as an industry, uh, we might have failed in properly educating people um, on the crucial uh, role of the Kimberley process, you know, on, on the role that it plays in, in the daily life, life of the diamond actors, you know. And that led to a misconception that we um, at the WDC are actively working on. Uh, and, um, you know, the latest example would be, you know, our cross membership with the RJC. Um, I'm sure also Iris will, will go back to that point, you know, and that was a huge opportunity uh, because it will give us a, a way bigger platform, you know, to explain our mandate and, and what still needs to be done. And more importantly, how can we do it together as an industry? And yes, there's still a lot to be done, you know, and the WDC is 100% committed to its part. You know, the, the KP needs to evolve. Uh, and match today's reality. And that means, you know, matching um, today's consumers' expectation. You know, we must live up to diamonds, Elle. Yeah. I just want to add to that, if I can. And, you know, I, I, like, I always like to talk about this issue of consensus. The difference between the Kimberley process and many other organizations out there or processes out there is that it's a decision-making body. And so any decision made by consensus would require any participating country to change the law of the land in that country. And it's been a huge success to address the issues of the past, absolutely. But now it's also a victim of its success because people wanted to immediately address the issues of the present and the issues of the future. And I think there's also this misunderstanding that the KP is a trade you know, tool. It's not. It's actually 
a government-led tool. Governments are the ones that can veto. They're the ones that need to deal with the consensus. But we as industry and also the other pillar, civil society, have a role to play in the discussions, in bringing information so that people can make informed decisions. I don't know uh, about all of you, but, you know, I'm, I'm one of five girls and making a decision in the family <laughs> takes months uh, for simple decisions as to where we should all meet as a family to go on holiday. So here we're talking about something far more complicated with 82 countries having to say yes to a decision. And that's what takes time. And that's why the intercessionals and the plenaries set by the Kimberley process are so critically important because we all get together under one roof to have a dialogue. And that dialogue is so critically important as well for consensus. That's really interesting. Does it feel like a does it feel like a dialogue? Do you feel like you're getting some traction and some progress when you do meet together? Much more than when we meet, um, you know, on offline, I guess on phone calls or, or team meetings, when we're all under one roof, we can have just like a family, you know, you, you, you don't agree, you might have uh, disagreements, but you can go outside in the corridor and have a one to one conversation, address these issues, listen to each other. But unfortunately, um, you know, with the pandemic, it slowed things down. I think last year and um, well, the last time we all met face to face, which was uh, under the chairmanship of India, we progressed a lot on critical issues as, you know, for example, like the definition of conflict diamonds. Um, we've been trying to discuss that for over a decade and never moved forward. Uh, but we did actually see lots of progress um, in 2019. Nice. I think we should move on to some standards now, uh, Ferriel, if you wouldn't mind telling us why why standards are so important in the industry. Well, that's a good question, Elle. You know, the, the KP, as um, Elodie mentioned, we see it as the backbone of the diamond industry. It's essentially a customs office for the natural diamonds. I mean, it doesn't exist anywhere else, but it's a government-led thing. And the certification scheme makes it extremely difficult for any type of conflict diamond to enter legitimately the diamond supply chain. And that addresses, you know, rough diamonds crossing international borders. However, there is a huge role here for industry to play because... At that moment, I can tell you that us, you know, in, in, in De Beers group, when we were looking at issues of KP, we immediately noticed, okay, well, consumer confidence is of critical importance here. And we as industry need to develop something that addresses supply chain risks. And that needs to be industry led because nobody understands the supply chain as much as industry before anyone else intervenes. And so we looked into the risks in mining, in the midstream, in cutting and polishing, jewellery manufacturing and retail and developed what is now known as the best practice principle standards, which are annually assured that they, they encompass uh, social rights, business integrity rights, environmental standards. And they are now over 16 years mature. Um, we have data uh, on all of the issues that are currently arising in the industry and upcoming issues that are brought in by uh, auditors because it's independently verified and puts us in this agile position where we can develop standards to address and mitigate against upcoming risks. And that was really critical for us. Uh, we launched it back in um, 2005, officially. You know, we developed it in 2003, but we launched it officially in 2005. It covers all of our operations and our contractors, all of our clients' operations and their contractors. And what's really, really unusual is, you know, with most of these uh, responsible sourcing um processes, you'd have the client say to their supplier, you know, if you want me to buy from you, you're going to have to do X, Y, and Z to make sure that, you know, you comply with my requirements and my policies. But because we were the pioneer and because of our positioning in the market, it's like the reverse, you know, we're putting it upside down. We're saying, if you want to be my customer and purchase my diamonds, here's what you're going to have to do. You're going to have to participate annually in the best practice principles program, and you're going to have to comply. Otherwise, your supply will be at risk. 
Fascinating. And how have people responded to that kind of, you know, it's quite a stringent set of guidelines. Well, it's been a journey to say the least. And I think at the beginning, people weren't fully understanding what we were proposing. So they were excited because we all have this common goal of ensuring that the diamonds uh, that we produce are making their way to the consumer in a manner that, you know, meets and exceeds consumers' expectations, right? Um, and I think at the beginning, everyone was really excited about it. But then when they actually understood what they had to go through, there was a lot of resistance. There were, there, we needed to do a lot of education. Um, we needed time to, to, to allow the industry to actually see that there is value in this. And there has been, you know, we have now, um, our clients asking us for our audit reports and the BPP reports because the financial sector now asks for it, you know, and, and, and they, it's facilitated other commercial agreements with quite large brands in the downstream. They've also noticed a much lower turnover within their factories and training someone to cut and polish a diamond is not a cheap task, let's say. So it's, it's really, you know, important to, to, you know, have this sustainability mindset and value add mindset in every single thing that we do. And the customers now are fully on board, but it's been, it's been a journey. It's not been so straightforward. I, I can I can step in now because I was there when uh, the beers launched the best practice principles. We were all invited. Uh, I remember in Mumbai and London uh, for this, you know, training and introduction to what was coming, and it completely changed the way people were doing business. So I think it brought new standards to the table. It brought a new way, a shift, a mindset uh, of uh, of you know more transparency. Uh, more focus on, you know, the topics that Ferial was talking about, like labor practices, health and safety, environmental impact, but in a structured manner. So I think the BPPs or the best practice principles really helped companies embed strong management systems as part of a culture of sustainability. So, yeah, I, I do applaud the efforts of the beers in what they have done. And I mean, this is just stuff that perhaps we might take for granted that people have got, you know, basic human rights and working rights. And it's it's crazy that, you know, this was needed. But I mean, are you hearing this from your customers and your consumers as well? What are they saying about the origins of the diamonds they're buying? What do they want to feel confident about? And what are the things they don't want to see? So we are a business L of, you know, emotions and beauty. So trust is at the heart of what we do. So when someone walks into a store or a boutique uh, and buys something for their loved one or for themselves, you know, they're looking really for that element of trust and accountability. And um, I think the good news is what we see that there's really a movement happening because before COVID, we already knew that the millennials and the Gen Z were looking much more for purpose and authenticity and uh, wanted to understand the story behind the product. But then COVID came and that accelerated. And all the research that we see from Bain Company and McKinsey, it all goes into the same direction. It's all about real purpose. And these consumers that are activists and that want to understand, you know, how does this company have a positive impact on society? And I think that's where we have a unique opportunity to tell that story of how diamonds do good. Because, you know, uh, look at the nation building in Botswana. Uh, last year, I mean, just before COVID, I was in Botswana. And, you know, it is so impressive what you see from access, you know, to healthcare and education and development. So I think, you know, it's really important that we are able to tell that story and also with reliable data. I completely agree with you, Eris. And, you know, I think that this drive towards sustainability really is a huge opportunity for, for us because we've never been able to tell our story or to tell it well. We've done so much and we've got so much to say. And sustainability and the sustainable development goals give that framework for us to be able to say it in an authentic manner because we've got the history as well. It's not that we're starting it now. And I agree with you, Iris. I mean, consumers are increasingly interested in knowing not only where their diamonds came from, but that it actually did good on its journey to them. And this means that it has to have created a positive impact, not only on those directly involved in the mining of diamonds, but also the communities that are surrounding them and all the people that a diamond touches along the value chain. And that is so critically important because consumers have this inherent 
connection to natural diamonds. And that connection is underpinned by trust. And for us to provide this trust, we need to be able to actually demonstrate it and demonstrate it in an authentic way, not by starting our journey now, but by talking about our past, showing the work that's been done so far, accepting that there's more to be done because there's always going to be more to be done. But we definitely are an industry that looks at using our resources and our tools to find solutions to address world challenges. Love that attitude. And you know what, Iris, I'm interested. How do you think we're going to get there? Because you've all been really candid on this podcast and said, you know, there are things that we still need to do. I mean, is it going to be technology? Is it going to be lobbying? Is it going to be working together? What's the things that are going to unlock that progress? Well, first of all, yes, we are going to get there because we are already on our way. And, um, and, uh, just reflecting on what Fariel was saying, you know, and she she touched uh, a topic very close to my heart, the 17 Sustainable Development Goals. We are in a unique position also historically because for the first time, 193 countries agreed in the world on what sustainability means. They agreed on this 2030 agenda, the 17 Sustainable Development Goals, and it's all about leaving no one behind. And very interesting, if you look at those goals, you know, many are so very critical to our industry. And just to touch upon a few, if you think about gender, SDG 5, 8, decent labor, 12, uh, responsible production consumption, 13, climate, 17, partnerships. How are we going to get there? Through partnerships. Partnerships, you know, from different sides in the supply chain. I mean, Elodie was uh, touching upon the fact that the RGC has a partnership with WDC, we have a partnership with our 1,450 member companies. We are on a journey with them to integrate sustainability at the heart of their business strategy. And that's difficult, that's hard work, and that's not perfect because supply chains are complex and multi-tier and that takes time. So um, if you ask me, you know, what then do we need to do? Well, I think we do need to do more, Elle, but that's not just for our industry, it's for all industries. Because we knew that the 2030 agenda, we are already behind, and that's, you know, based on facts. Then COVID came. So I think we need to accelerate efforts. And I think that's where the Responsible Jury Council, as the leading standards, really sees, you know, a, a leadership role in partnership with so many organizations, you know, like SIPJO and WGA and the Natural Diamond Council, etc. Because we believe we have the unique opportunity now to tell what positive impact are we making and how in different areas? And so in that context, I'm also proud to, to share with you that we have just set up an SDG task force. So within the governance structure of RJC, um, that is co-chaired by the Beers Group and by um, uh, Richemont. And I'm, I'm really uh, honored that Feriel is uh, co-chairing it together with Matthew Kilgore from uh, Richemont. Uh, Elodie from the World uh, Diamond Council is participating in it. And it's important because we have voices from small enterprises, leading brands in the middle of the supply chain, and we are piloting, piloting to understand data and metrics to show progress. And then the objective is let's bring everyone along the journey. And to, do, to be able to do that, we need to educate, educate, educate. And, uh, and also report back because, you know, you need to show and, and, uh, and you can only do that on the basis of data. So yes, you know, I believe there's still a lot to be done, but I'm very confident that with what I see in the industry and the commitment and the leaders of this industry, that we will make it happen. I'm really interested, actually, Elodie, Iris, you both work outside De Beers. You both have a lot of influence in the industry. What are the really good things that you see out there? What are the things that might cause you some concern and where can we work even smarter together to make that positive progress? How are you holding the beers to account? Before I started with the WGC about 15 months ago, um, I was uh, in between the high-end jewelry industry and, and a diamond dealer, you know, in Paris. I come from Paris. Um, and, and Iris was talking about the diversity of our industry, you know, uh, SMEs, uh, bigger companies, huge groups. And we all have um, a, an image in our head of what the industry is, but it's, it's actually quite different. So when I was working for that company, Rebelle Menachea, had the huge 
pleasure and opportunity to go and visit the Juaneng mine in Botswana. And, and I went there with two, uh, with two brands, two, two big French brands. And we had a chance to visit the mine. And at some point, you know, I, I needed to take a break. So someone from the beers is walking me down, you know, uh, and, and showing me, you know, the, the building. And uh, we are on an upper level. And, and he said to me, look down. Do you see down the atrium? Do you see that booth? I said, yeah, I do. What is it? He said, well, it's pink October, October rose. So, uh, you know, um, breast cancer. So anyone here can go to that booth and, you know, and, and get, you know, and get to see a doctor to be examined, you know, examined. So I, I thought it was wonderful. It's, and I said, can I go? He said, sure, anyone can go. And, you know, that's something that if you do not go, you cannot imagine, you know, to what extent some company within our industry would go to have a positive impact, not just for publicity, but on their people, their employees, the community surrounding, surrounding them. And, and I saw... Also, the look of, of the, the people, you know, we, we took on this journey from, from the jewelry brands, you know, when they had a chance to start chatting with the people, uh, sorting the diamonds, the rough diamonds. So you come here, for you, it's a whole new world. You have your, your big eyes, you know, and even though, you know, they, they, they craft some of the most wonderful pieces of jewelry, having a chance to chat with the people sorting the rough is incredible. And that smile, you know, the smile and the pride on the faces of the people that we met was astonishing. And, and that's it, you know, I think there's so much, there's so many examples we could give. But the thing is, we need to tell that story. And, and thank you, Hel, for, you know, for allowing me to share this, that wonderful souvenir, because that's, that's where we go. And, and Iris w was talking about, you know, the telling a story and also, and also having, you know, uh, data. And, and I guess we need both, you know. We need that story that, that can uh, light up, you know, uh, the eyes of a consumer when, when he walks in a, a diamond um, uh, shop. But also you need to prove what you're claiming. And, and I think that's, uh, that's what we're doing. And as you can see, we're three strong-willed women, you know, and we don't shy away. <laughs> From the, from the workload, because there's still a lot to be done. Elle, when, when you ask that question about, you know, how are you holding the beers and others to account, I take everyone very much uh, under accountability as members of the Responsible Jury Council. And I guess when I look back, I also want to recognize, you know, when leaders do make big differences in this world. And uh, the De Beers was a founding member of the RJC. Uh, they have supported the RJC throughout the journey. And that was, you know, through knowledge sharing, expert learning, uh, peer discussions. And you need that. Uh, I, I see that also when I look at the 1,450 members today. When CEOs step up, you know, it brings a different vibe in the room. At the end of the day, they are the decision makers and they can cascade policies and policy implementation and standards, not only within their own operations, but also in the broader supply chain. And that's what I saw firsthand when I was working for one of the key side holders uh, for the beers, how they really changed these dynamics of, you know, working and, and getting people uh, to understand what it means, uh, responsibility and sustainability to embed that in, in one's operations. So if you say, what, what, what are the next steps? I think the next steps is, um, like I said before, is really continuing to move ahead, one step ahead. And I think because the beers are leaders, you expect always a little bit more. So I would say, you that's know, true. yeah, <laughs> that's true. That's true. And, and yeah, I would say, always yes. More. <laughs> and I would say, you know, keep up that, keep up uh, that pace. It's like, you know, you're running a marathon, right? It's the New York marathon and you're just, uh, at the park and then you realize you still have to do these five horrible miles in the park in Central Park and everybody's screaming and running well I, I would say that you know those those um, that run you know needs to continue and uh, and we know it's a long run and that run will never stop um, for sure but I think where we we where I do believe is that you know let those CEOs really um, yeah step up even more 
and also tell their story and tell the story the way it is. Because I also, I also believe that any consumer is not looking for a perfect story. They're looking for a credible story, an authentic story. And I believe that uh, we with our natural diamonds, we have really authentic stories to tell. Diamonds are a sexy topic. Making them sexy means they're sexy to attack, right? And it's highly unbranded, this industry. You know, apart from some few, you know, retailers with big brands that do also colored stones and what, it's highly unbranded. So when there is a, an attack on the natural diamond industry, it attacks us all. It attacks us all, from the large corporates to the small players to the communities. And so the truth, the truth sorry, needs to be told. And I really genuinely believe that this accelerated, you know, change in landscape with the consumers, where they want to know more, where they're interested, and they want to make sure that every single industry and every single business is there using its power and impact to influence positive change on the issues that they care about, doesn't pose a risk for us. I'm really excited about this, because for me, I just see this as a huge opportunity to finally be able to talk about all the great stuff that we've been doing, that we've done, and that we still need to do. I think, you know, one point I also wanted to say, sitting here with Elodie and uh, Feriel, I feel very privileged. With age comes, I guess, also um, more responsibility, but also, I think, even more the notion of how important relationships are. Uh, and I also feel very grateful because we've been working also on an initiative very closely with, you know, the whole industry, which is called Generation Equality. And that's really about driving SDG 5 uh, forward in the global jewelry and watch industry, because we believe we have a unique opportunity to really um, support women um, and to, uh, you know, to help them also move uh, further in their careers. And, and that means at all levels. So um, again, we're working closely with WDC, the beers on that. So these are our projects of, of passion and purpose. And I hope very much, El, that in 10 years, you can reinvite us and that we can tell you <laughs> the progress we made. I just don't think I've met a more passionate, purposeful group of women. Absolute warrior women. Thank you so much. I've learned so much. And I hope that our listeners enjoyed this episode of the Building Forever podcast as much as I have. Fascinating conversation. And I'm sure they'll get a lot out of it. Thank you, Feriel, Elodie and Iris so much for being part of this. I'm really excited to welcome Rebecca Kumba-Missa and Raymond Alpha to the Building Forever podcast. They're part of De Beers' Gemfair team based in Sierra Leone and work with artisanal and small-scale miners to improve their livelihoods. Becky, Raymond, thank you so much for joining me. Um, now, would you mind sharing just a little bit about how you came to Gemfair? Hello, thanks for having me. Before joining Gemfair, I used to work for different NGOs on sexual gender-based violence issues. I spent about five years working as outreach staff. I joined Gemfair in late 2018. I was sitting in a mob with friends. There I heard about Gemfair and that there was an opening for outreach officer position. With my background and role in the previous job as outreach person, I did apply and I was invited to interview a few days after. Then I got the job. I'm presently serving in the capacity of Outreach Officer for Gemfair SL. And um, Raymond, what about you? How did you join Gemfair? I joined Gemfair right from the inception of the program in 2018. I came from the National Electoral Commission at the end of a short-term contract with them to help conduct the then presidential and parliamentary elections in Sierra Leone, which was in 2018. Um, NEC is the body responsible for the conduct of all elections in the country. Um, I came to know about the need for enumerators to a friend that worked for another organization here in Kwedu. Um, when I came from Freetown, the capital city of Sierra Leone, on a visiting trip to my family members in Kono, I was um, offered really contracts to like, be a part of the enumeration team, and I, we collected the data on the baseline assessments for um, the Gemfia program. And um, 
Thereafter, I was also like given the, I was um, offered the contract to assist in setting up the Gemfair office here in Kwedu. Um, long story short, after that, uh, the position for location manager was also advertised and then I applied. I got an offer to work for Gemfair and um, presently I am working in that capacity. It's amazing you've both got such fascinating backgrounds and it seems like both of you have sort of touched either politics or human rights. I wonder if that's something that you really need to do, the job that you do at Gemfair. So I guess let's talk a little bit about that. It's artisanal and small-scale mining. It accounts for about 20% of the diamond industry, so not an insignificant proportion. I wonder if you can paint our listeners a picture of life there in Sierra Leone what small-scale mining really actually means and maybe even some of the challenges that these miners face. Um, Becky, do you want to start? Small-scale mining in Sierra Leone is commonly associated with indigenous, though we have others in different spheres of work engaging in mining at different scale. It is a source of living for most people that have taken to it. In ASM, you can see a good sign of partnership at work among the landowners and those who have the financial power to invest in mining. And at the end, they go into shares of proceeds in agreed proportions. But however, there are some challenges. Access to finance has always been a challenge. Like food is not always readily available for people. This was only made worse by COVID, leaving the miners with low rates of employment, and the already fragile food security situation of the community was made even worse. Majority of ASM sites in Konodi Street, Sierra Leone, where Chemfair works, are abandoned without any backfilling, leaving holes in the ground which can pose a safety risk, a breeding ground for waterborne diseases and waste of productive lands. In 2020, Gemfia decided to implement a pilot to see how it could work to reclaim land, which was successfully done by reclaiming three sites in close consultation with community stakeholders and authorities. We worked with a team leader to hire diggers from the communities to work on backfilling. Monitoring their progress several times a week, we handed over the land and donated seedlings at the end of backfilling to each site. At present, cultivation of rice is ongoing. This has helped the communities in terms of employment and provision for their families. So basically, there's, there's a few things to unpack there. So actually, food scarcity has been a real problem in Sierra Leone. So when you say that, do you mean that lots of families are living hand to mouth and very, very dependent on, I don't know, is it food banks out there? Is it charitable donations? How, how scarce has it actually been? Is it is it crops that aren't there? In um, this part of the country, there are a lot of people actually who are doing um basic agriculture, I would say subsistence farming. And um, looking at that scale, it's not enough. And the challenge there would be availability of these lands that have already like, you know, been very limited as a result of mining activities. So you always find that the production will be very low and um, it will not be enough to like get a round circle of the year in terms of feeding. With the advent of COVID, it's making the situation very, very worse. And um, even people are, it's like a beer feed onto mouths. They are like, you know, surviving on. That's the kind of situation. It's shocking, isn't it? And then you mentioned actually that some of the mines have been closed and therefore essentially they're just kind of pits in the ground filled with water, which is a real hazard for people out there. Could you tell me a little bit about how you're getting around that or how you sort of notice the problem and what steps you're putting in place to change things? I would say Atsana mining is like a key component of the economic cycle in the district. And um, it's a livelihood for most um, those who are engaged in it. For the most part, people are also like moving from other parts of the country to like come to this part and they're very much involved in that. And um, for that reason, it's really our work around is moving with the people in uh, most of our engagements, we already think it is very, very important that we make sure that they understand, based on the gem fear perspective, 
they understand what it is to work um, in a very responsible way. We also try as best as we can to make sure that they know what it takes to work in the industry and working in the industry, meaning that they have to do it as expected according to the standard requirements. So you'll find out that most of what we do, we take them through our onboarding program. Onboarding program, which takes a lot of process, you have to, to legitimize the membership or the status as part of the program. We go through all what it, take, what it takes actually to be a member. And once they become members, what we are doing, we take them to classrooms, take them through our core values. We try as best as we can to make sure they understand um, the legitimacy aspect of um, working in the industry, the um, peer value processes, which we always try to like, you know, tell them. And we make sure that they are able to understand the transparency aspect of it in terms of the traceability and then the empowerment side of it, giving them the knowledge that it takes to work in a safe environment, to work in a, in a child labor free environment, to work in a kind of forced labor free environment, and even in a way of like taking care of the, the environments where they are working, that it will not be, you know, causing hazards in society. So this is exactly what we're doing to like uh, give a kind of a change or we're trying to like, you know, change the, the narrative of all what has been happening in the sector. Some of the challenges the miners face, um, though, yes, they are limited, but some of the, the tangible ones I see, I will tell you there is a knowledge gap between the, the miners themselves, among the miners that knowing the supporters, the financiers who are involved in the operation and the landowners and the very diggers. So you always find that they are, it's difficult to sometimes understand exactly what they are about. Also, the other challenge I'll share is the process of legitimizing the work that these guys do is not like a, a one-stop activity. It's more or less a movement, making sure that they get the licenses that require them to work it's um, a kind of process. Sometimes it appears to them like something very, very cumbersome. It's also a challenge that they will have to like, you know, help with that. The other thing I actually see some of the, in this sector is that there is not that kind of business-minded approach ability for some of these guys to like, you know, making savings and um, reinvesting some of this cash and uh, from whatever we sell and to like do for the following season. However, I these are challenges that have been in existence, but the COVID has just like, you know, widened the gap. So it's really, really the reason why I think this, they need um, um, funding or maybe resources from somewhere else to invest in that aspect of their work. You're so right. It's a movement, not a moment. And I think that can be quite hard when, or even quite overwhelming perhaps for some people who just think I just want to do what I want to do and want to do it in the quickest way possible so that I can literally feed my family and so that kind of education and working together to legitimize this process and make it easier long term must be quite a challenge. You don't get involved with something like this without feeling some sort of personal connection. Could you both kind of tell me why you felt so compelled to do this, why it was something you needed to get involved in, what it meant to you personally. Becky, could we start with you? Before I joined Genfia, I knew little about the industry. I spent more time working with and engaging the miners, especially on the Genfia approach. I have realized that it's not all about money the miners get from sales of diamond but also helping the least miner in the sector through capacity building and raising awareness on the best practice standards in the sector. Talking about personal thing in the industry, when you say you want to help, you should help with your old mind and try to see that you, you help your, your community from the past things that they have been going through. So for me personally, involving in Genfia is just like helping my people, which is the, the mining community, to see that they improve um, day by day on the things they do to improve the mining sector. And Raymond, what is it for you? For me, as a corner man, 
my role in Gymfear actually makes me feel happy and I desire to do more, especially when my contribution in the Gymfear program is creating the kind of community impact I ever wished for in the district. That is, people getting the information they need to make a lasting change in handling the environment. Also trying to like, you know, change the narrative of the concept of the ASM, bringing standards to the sector and upgrading the level of people, the understanding of people in the, in the ASM and whatever they do on a daily basis. Um, so that makes me feel very, very happy um, being part of the team and involving, especially for my people. Do you feel like you're starting to see some of the positive effects of, that your work is doing? That is perfectly sure. I, in, before now, I would say, without the exception, you could find the challenges in order for people to like, accept what the change is. Of course, it's difficult once, once people have been used to a kind of way of life, bringing them what is good, probably because it is not accustomed to their practices, it becomes a challenge. But I will tell you with all confidence that um, what I see now in three years since we started is a different thing and um, it's a kind of saying, oh, it speaks volume of what impact we have already created in the society. There is nowhere you can go within the district of Kono and you can't hear the good things about what Gemfia is doing and the kind of um, changes we are impacting the society and improving the society to be. So that makes me very, very great. And uh, since I think seeing them now at this time of the um, operation, three years, then I am very, very optimistic. And um, I think many, more, many much more good things are you know, bound to happen and people are very receptive for the good things they see. That's so encouraging to hear. How do you find working with these artisanal miners? I mean, what are some of the things that you might do together on a day-to-day -day basis? Working with the artisanal miners, actually, it's, it's something that um, really like, um, it's an interesting knowledge to have, I would definitely say. If you are with the miners, we engage them in most, mostly in different, different things, especially on our sport check activities. We, when working in working conditions with miners on site, we discuss in a way of follow-up as a measure for like um, the implementations of all the lessons and all the classroom sessions we hold with them. So engaging them in the field of activity, you will see the practical side of what they do and then you give them the opportunity to ask questions that they could not ask when they are in the classroom. So this you find it's very interactive and it's very educational when you find yourself, you know, talking with them. And more so when we um, we speak the same language, we um, kind of they tend to like you know confine and try to bring out things that are very difficult or challenging in their work and um, even in their lives as uh, a workforce. So I find it very very much helpful to be uh, a kind of around them and helping them with much of this thing, communicating the, the good things that they need to do as a team. Nice. And what about you, Becky? What are some of the some of the tasks that you might do with the miners? Well, I enjoy working with miners and we do have a good working relationship, especially in my outreach activities. Like I have a story to share. Um, before now, um, when I go out to do my outreach sessions or activities, you meet some communities. They are very, very much stubborn to understand what you are saying. But you need to have that time, the patient, to explain to them over and over again for them to understand what you mean. So from there, they will get to befriend you, will be calling you, and they will also help you to share the information to other miners to get them on board so they will also be part of Chemfia. So for me, I find it so enjoying and I'm happy I'm working with those miners. It must be so empowering because actually making a real difference to a community where you've maybe lived, grown up, seen the challenges that it faces, but actually working really hard together to come up with a solution to some of the world's biggest problems, frankly, and it, it must be so empowering and rewarding. Sure, um, um, it is, and um, I will definitely say not only to the 
to us who are actually passing on what exactly it takes to like for them to understand well the miners themselves becoming very very much uh, empowered especially when it comes to the knowledge base because I will definitely tell you before the uh, inception or before gem fair little or no knowledge um, with all even what the, the miners are using for the probably like um, the values of uh, diamonds or you talk about best practices or you talk about um, the use of safety equipment these were all things like you know strange and very difficult for the miners so once you tell them that this keeps you safe say for example the PPs this keeps you safe and it makes you much more better when you are at work then you give them the power to see that it is very much important and then it's something that they need to work with always it gives them the power and more courage you know to know that it's an employment and it's not just a way of um, doing things as they want but following the best practice will actually take them to where they want and as they are changing lives seeing it as a livelihood then that's really really like you know give them the kind of empowerment they need and i see that coming from the side of Genfia to the mining communities love that okay becky raymond thank you so much for joining me on the building forever podcast keep up the amazing work and thank you for your time thank you goodbye yeah, thanks for having <laughs> us and um yeah bye-bye our burning question this month is about the best practice principles at 16 years old are they still as relevant now as they once were amina russell best practice principles and ethical initiatives lead tells us what she thinks yeah, and that's a great question. And I think um, unlike some programs, and that's not to do other programs a disservice at all, but some programs might be constrained through governance processes of not being able to review that frequently. Um, but actually, because the BPPs are proprietary to De Beers, it means that we are able to update them annually. And in fact, we do update them annually. Um, so that means that we're able to respond to any risks that could impact consumer confidence. But also it means we can stay ahead of the curve as well, where we see trends of what consumers are becoming interested in to embed them into the BPPs. But I suppose on the more softer things that consumers would be more interested in, in things like making sure their diamond is natural and it's not an undisclosed synthetic diamond, human rights, you know, guarantee of minimum wage. Those are all things that have been able to they've always been in the program but when those risks change we've been able to really adapt to them another example as well is taking COVID-19 obviously last year we were all taken by surprise with the effects of the pandemic but one thing we were really clear on is that there's never a more important time for something like the BPPs than in a time of unprecedented crisis and unlike many other companies um, and many other initiatives that may have been too constrained to be able to adapt that quickly because our program is proprietary we could immediately put in place checks and measures to ensure that we were considering the risks of COVID-19 because you know it was well stated that things like employment health and safety etc were likely to become increased risks as a result as a result of the pandemic through not having you know social distancing or cutting people's wages redundancies etc. Thanks for tuning into Building Forever, a podcast from De Beers Group. Ethical practice, thriving communities, equal opportunity, and the natural world are topics teeming with questions. If there's something you think we should discuss in a future episode, do get in touch with us. You'll find us at De Beers Group Communications at DeBeersGroup.com or reach out on Twitter at De Beers Group using the hashtag Building Forever. Until next time. Thank you.